Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. I hope you were able to catch our fifth anniversary episode last week. I'm really happy with the work that our editor Scott Silk put in to commemorate the event. Oh, did you happen to see The Witch last year? I had a few people tell me that they thought it was the best horror film of 2016. I watched it last week and thought it's solid, but I'm not sure if I'd give it best of the year. There are some very gruesome bits to it, but doesn't overdo it. I do like the restraint of the filmmakers, and I hope to see more from that crew. I encourage you to check it out. It's well done. This week, we'll have two more stories for you. The first one comes to us from Folly Blaine. Folly Blaine lives in Seattle, Washington. Her work has appeared in everyday fiction, Flashes in the Dark, Ten Flash Quarterly, and in the anthology Dark Tales of Lost Civilizations. She also has a horror story scheduled to appear in an upcoming anthology edited by Casey Lansdell, Fresh Blood and Old Bones. You can find Folly online at, maybe it was the moonshine, www.follyblaine.com. Link will be in the show notes. Her story, British Guyana, 1853, was originally published in Eric J. Guinard's anthology, Dark Tales of Lost Civilizations. Let's give it a listen. First of March. My dearest Isabel, the Whitby sailed into Georgetown late due to rough weather, yet Mr. Joseph Sutton graciously arranged to meet me at the dock upon arrival. Mr. Sutton, you may recall, is the gentleman who first spotted the mysterious creature in the Starbrook market and requested the British Museum 
conduct a formal scientific inquiry. If only that skull hadn't gone missing in transit, or there'd been more than those few rough sketches, my superiors would have recognised the implications as I did and honoured the request. Imagine being handed the opportunity to study a living relative of Megalosaurus or Iguanodon in the dark heart of South America. Think of the fame awaiting the man who makes those fossils breathe. But the crown lies heavy, as they say. I alone grasp the potential, and now the burden falls upon me to tender proof. Returning to the subject of Mr. Sutton, due to our late arrival he excused himself to attend to other obligations. However, he generously referred me to his man, Asco, to act as interpreter and guide during my stay. As it was a market day, Asco brought me to the stall where the creature had been discovered. Unfortunately, we learned the Indians, whether through ignorance or hunger, had consumed all remaining evidence of the beast before it could be properly catalogued. Asco asked where we might procure a replacement, and the natives, at first, demurred. I am afraid I was forced to bribe them with the belt you gave me last Christmas day. I consider it a small price to pay for wisdom gained. Greed is the same in all cultures of the world. Darling, do not be angry. I retained the two handkerchiefs you embroidered for luck. I would never part with those. The Indians reported finding the beast near a wall of stone about three days to the south by boat and a half-day's walk from the Essequibo River. Asco believes the men were lying to elicit more trinkets. Regardless... I plan to mount an expedition and charter a boat on the morrow. I will see these walls for myself. Isabel, I thank you once again for obtaining the necessary funds from your father for this voyage. You are a most loving and steadfast wife who understands with perfect clarity that one man's intuition is as great as another man's knowledge. I only hope to repay your father with a discovery worthy of your faith. 2nd of March. Dawn. Isabel, I am bundling my letters to post together. As you may imagine, once we breach the jungle interior, communication will be difficult. I miss you terribly. 2nd of March. Evening. Despite Asco's increasingly sour attitude, I have decided he should remain on staff. I find his aboriginal insights useful, his interpreter skills unmatched, and I do not wish to slight Mr. Sutton's generosity. I have relented in one way to his vocal misgivings. Asco insists we need more supplies. Today has been wasted hiring horses to take us to the village where our canoes will launch. An obstruction in the river forces us to walk part of the journey normally traversed by water. Our party consists of myself, Asco, six Indians, two horses and numerous containers for holding the specimens I am sure to find. The horses are malnourished creatures. I doubt they'll last two days hard walking. My excitement grows leaps and bounds when I think this is the same jungle that fed my insatiable imagination as a child reading Charles Waterton's Wanderings in South America. These hot green lands are a waking dream. 3rd of March. Isa... The Indians are of a curious stature, small and dark of skin. They move so quietly, 
I think shadows must flow through their veins instead of blood. We are committed now, travelling along well-worn paths between Georgetown and the nearest village, whose name I can't pronounce. Even on these constant roads, the jungle threatens to reclaim its own. The men slash the vines and creepers back with practice strokes. In general, these Indians appear to be peaceful. I have only seen them wield their weapons against the vegetation. Still, I keep my distance. As I predicted, the horses can barely carry supplies, let alone a person. I am forced to walk in their stead, so that they might draw the attention of any predators. I am told predators are a grave concern in this area. However, do not fear, dearest Isabel. These precautions are sure to keep me safe and whole. With regards to the smallest and most pervasive nuisance in the jungle, the mosquito net I wrap myself in nightly keeps out the worst of the insects. Their buzzing remains an ever-present distraction, but I have found a solution. Ah, Isa, you will find this amusing, no doubt. The creatures of the jungle squawk and hum so loudly, and I am so starved for respectable music. I've made a game of calling the noise my symphony of discord. To pass the lonely hours when other men sleep, I conduct these savage musicians with a swoop of my hands and trill of my fingers, anticipating their next braying crescendo. Isabel, it gives me such pleasure to think of you, healthy and warm in our cheerful cottage, attending to your needlework by the fire. You are always in my thoughts. 4th of March. No sign of the village yet. Little wonder with the vines, Asco calls them bush ropes, and creepers blocking our view in all directions. Periodically one of the Indians shinnies up a tree and confirms our direction, hacking a path for the horses. I amuse myself with learning more about the flora and fauna of the region. For example, my love, the ulu trees have the sweetest-smelling resin, although the wild fig trees are an endless source of ripe fruit. I am sure this minutia will only add depth to my official report. In practical matters, there appears to be a hole in my mosquito netting. My arms and legs are covered in welts I am sorely tempted to scratch. Asco has taught me to move my bedding closer to the smoke of the fires to decrease the insect menace, and to rub a concoction of mud and ulu sap on the worst of the bites to deaden the sting. 7th of March It has been several days since I last wrote. I have been battling some kind of sickness and near delirium as we travelled down the river, but now that we've reached land again, I'm sure to be on the mend. Here is what I remember of the past few days. The village where we boarded the canoes was a sad affair. Every man survived the trip. The horses did not. Since they were already close to death, and little use, Asco gave them to the villagers to eat. I fear it was a kindness for both the horses and the villagers. We landed shortly before nightfall, and Asco suggested we camp on the shore of the Essequibo River. I admit relief that we will not set out immediately, for my body is still weak and my senses dulled from fever. Another night's rest should flush out the toxins and set me to right so that I may properly enjoy this adventure once more. 8th of March, Dawn 
I suspect the men are talking about me in their odd, choppy tongue. Whenever I meet their eyes, they look away. If I didn't know better, I'd say they were frightened, but of what I couldn't say. Asco whipped a man last night for some infraction. I feigned sleep. I do not like to get involved. 8th of March, late afternoon. At last we've arrived. It seems the men from the market gave us an accurate account of the wall's location after all. Isa, I wish you were here to experience these wonders. It nearly defies description, but I will attempt a record, however flawed. The walls are carved in detailed relief, the human figures rendered so exquisitely, with a skill much advanced for this region. I suspect we will find evidence of European influence once I am able to properly examine the markings. Imagine the acclaim awaiting an explorer who uncovers such a connection. I may even have the honour of naming the new civilization. 9th of March We are certainly in the right place, Isa. I caught a glimpse of one of the strange beasts that drew us here, and it was magnificent. I recognised it at once from Mr. Sutton's description. If I hadn't been looking, I'm sure to have missed him. His colouring blends in perfectly with the wet greenery prevalent here. He appears to be an oversized lizard, about five feet in length. His long tail curls like a snake, but has some manoeuvrability. I watched him wrap the end around a vine and use it to hoist himself upward, hugging a tree trunk with his thick yellow talons, and disappear into the canopy. The creature moved very fast on four legs in a kind of graceful waddle. At the centre of his forehead appeared to be a large white spot, which, in an illusory way, acted as its own beacon. Perhaps nature dabbles in trompe l'oeil. Forgive my crude attempt at humour, Isa. I know you consider painting a noble and serious art. Although the jungle evokes a levity you may not find appealing, I assure you, my dearest, I remain your faithful servant beneath the mirth. I must catch one of these creatures. Alive, preferably. 10th of March, morning. Two of the Indians disappeared in the night, spooked, no doubt, by the sniffling sounds round the edges of the camp. Good riddance. Their kind of outdated superstitious prattle was terrible for morale. I am convinced it was nothing, perhaps the rustling of wind as it parted the leaves, or a small rodent scrabbling for worms in the undergrowth. As you well know, Isabel, I find cowardice disagreeable, and yet I must be charitable. The Indians have the form of men, but are children at heart. 10th of March, Midday I led the remaining four Indians and Asco round the wall and discovered it was built in the shape of a semicircle, butting against a hill. Midway round I discovered an opening concealed by a matted curtain of thorny plants. I instructed the men, through Asco, to clear a space, and their efforts allowed me to pass unmolested into a spacious courtyard, measuring roughly 300 feet across and 150 feet deep. In the centre of the hill absolutely covered in vines and overhanging tree branches, was a dense patch of vegetation in the shape of a door, about six feet high. My intuition told me we would find something special there. The men set to work clearing the vines and soon revealed a grotesque relief carved into the door, 
a caricature of a man's swollen face, eyes bulging and tongue lolling from the mouth. Much of the detail was obscured by grime, but I believe it to be extremely valuable. I will take a rubbing and capture the image before continuing. It is a marvel, darling, this place. Even the mosquitoes think so, for I have not been plagued since we moved our camp inside the walls. 11th of March. The door, I was surprised to find, was unlocked. Although once the vines were moved away from the edges, I quickly saw it was not a door in the traditional sense, as it lacked the requisite hinges. It would be more accurate to call it a plug, something to stopper the crude opening at the hill's base. Time and the elements had taken their toll, and once the vegetation was cleared, bits of stone fairly crumbled away in our fingers. It was a simple matter to pry apart a gap and squeeze through. Confronted by incessant darkness within, we were momentarily stymied by our need to obtain fresh torches, the wood we'd selected being too damp to catch. However, after finding suitable replacements, we descended. The torches cast the most delightful shadows on the narrow walls, causing my imagination to run rampant like a child. We descended slowly, the carved steps, slick with moss and what appeared to be small piles of excrement. Convenient bush ropes grew, even here, for us to grip and steady ourselves. As we moved away from the entrance, the rectangle of light behind us grew dim, and we became entirely reliant on our torches. As we crept along, the temperature climbed. With each step, the air became denser, more humid. I unbuttoned my shirt three buttons and rolled up my sleeves to the elbow. With no end to the stairs apparent, the men hesitated, and I buoyed their spirits with promises of extra pay. You see, Isa, I have learned to speak their language. The stairs ended at a square room about 125 feet down, the vines having disappeared about 60 feet down. The men demanded a break before continuing, and I granted their request. They crouched on the red dirt floor, fanning themselves and swallowing deeply from their water skins. I myself was perspiring quite profusely and nearly blind from the salty water flooding my vision, yet what I saw in that room made me forget my discomfort. Every wall was carved into the most amazing panels. The panels appeared to depict progressing events, as if there was a story being told on the walls. I regret to say none of the images were familiar. As I inspected the squiggly lines and contorted limbs by torchlight, the Indians averted their eyes. Perhaps the images hold some mystical significance. I must remember to ask Asko. Along the far wall, I found an opening, about three feet high, leading away into darkness. Secured above the opening was an exquisite statue of a young, fertile woman, naked from the waist up, wearing a long black skirt. Her features were blunted by age, but she appeared to be decorated in gold inlay, with a third eye carved into her forehead. I imagine the piece will be considered a major discovery by the museum. I relay this calmly, but, Isa, I can barely stay still. Recalling this experience restarts the pounding of my heart and excites the passion of my brain. I dropped to my hands and knees and listened at the opening, 
wondering what other treasures awaited beyond, but only had the impression of vast, unfriendly space. Then I had the idea to thrust my torch forward. It was still very dark, but I could clearly see the tunnel led into another cavernous room, and I could just make out the carved toes of a large ivory-coloured statue, proving incontrovertibly that humans once occupied this space, perhaps for ritual purposes. I decided not to advance until we gathered more torches, and had obtained sufficient supplies, water being my chief concern due to the sweltering heat. I noticed Asko's attention was locked onto something in the opposite corner, and I approached him quietly. He was fondling several small skulls I had overlooked, skulls that appeared to belong to the mysterious creatures. All showed signs of violent death. Chunks of bone were missing along the backplate, as if a sharp and serrated tool had been used for the death blow. But most interesting were the foreheads. Where a skull typically bulges at the front, I discovered a strange object embedded firmly in the bone. The object glowed dully in the darkness under its own power. The object is the size of my palm, with the general appearance and hardness of a diamond. I chose one of the better-preserved skulls, and wrapped it in a handkerchief to investigate in the sun. Asko asked to take one of his own for inspection. I did not see the harm. Partially obscured by the skull pile, I made the most fantastic discovery of our journey thus far, a nest containing four viable eggs, which I assume to be the creature's offspring. I have taken one of the greyish eggs and secured it in my breast pocket, nestling it to my bosom for warmth. Warmth I had in spades. I feel the spectre of that oppressive heat even now. With luck I will soon observe the creature's hatching and add to my knowledge of the beast. I was stopped short by a low keening wail that reverberated through the tunnels and through the low opening in the far wall. The hair on my arms stood on end as I wondered what manner of beast made that sound. To calm the men, Asko suggested it was the wind blowing through the cracks in the rock. I have doubts. Aware of the late hour, and uneasy about remaining below ground after nightfall, I instructed the men to return to the surface. Now I sit in the relative comfort and safety of the courtyard, beside a roaring fire, listening to my symphony of discord, recording my thoughts. Tomorrow, perhaps, we will uncover more secrets about this lost civilization. In my wildest dreams, Isa, these revelations are more than I ever could have hoped. 12th of March. Isa, I sent two of the men back to the river for water, since we have yet to discover a closer source. I learned that although we just came from the river, supplies are already dangerously low. I assumed Asko would oversee the water collection, and apparently he thought I was responsible. Hence we are down to our final drops. While I await their return, I continue to explore this marvellous courtyard. Abundant evidence suggests this was an outpost for some advanced civilization now lost to the ages, which I am in a unique situation to reveal. Although the jungle has encroached and destroyed several dwellings around the outskirts, I imagine they were sturdy wooden structures in their prime, adept at providing shelter from the frequent jungle rains. In these spaces I have uncovered crudely wrought stone tools and shards of pottery, with faded designs barely visible 
on the rounded edges. Frequently I have seen similar symbols painted and carved into surfaces that may represent a form of written language. Thus far my efforts to decipher the complex and interlocking figures have been unsuccessful. However, I expect to solve the mystery any day now. I continue to press the egg securely against my heart. I have not felt so much as a wiggle, but I will not lose hope. 13th of March I have examined the skull in detail. The whitish object embedded in the creature's skull is a new kind of crystal, harder than calcite, about the same toughness as quartz. When I scratched the surface with my fingernail, it did not leave a mark. The egg... My egg has hatched. I have named the creature Gilberth. More to come. The men returned with water a short time ago, so I must write quickly. Gilberth is the size of my palm. His skin is scaly, dry, and luminescent green with a hard grey pebble embedded at the centre of his forehead. The pebble is the diameter of a child's fingernail. I suspect the pebble transforms into white crystal as the creature ages, in much the same way sand is altered within an oyster to become a pearl. I notice that Asko is of a similar mind. He has pried the gem from his creature's skull and fashioned it into a garish pendant, reminiscent of the impressive Koinor diamond we saw at the World's Fair two years ago. Indeed, the two are indistinguishable to the untrained eye. Isa, my darling, I have set one of these strange gems aside for you to fashion into something beautiful. Gilbert's eyes are sealed shut with mucus, and when he opens his mouth to mule, no sound emerges. I do not know what my youngling eats. I will attempt a selection of figs and nuts. Gilbert has not taken anything but water. Perhaps he relies upon mother's milk. He seems to be in some distress. I have discovered what Gilbert eats. I should have expected, judging by the teeth embedded in the adult creature's skull. But sometimes we are blind to the obvious. As I was handling the skull earlier, I nicked my finger, spilling a few drops of blood in the dirt. The babe must have sensed this for he jumped from my shoulder to the ground and hungrily lapped up the drops, eyes still sealed. I was able to squeeze a few more drops directly into his mouth, enough to satiate my tiny monster. Then I returned him to my pocket, and he slept peacefully at last. I think it best not to tell the men these creatures are sustained by blood, or they may balk at further adventuring. However, I will recommend that every man bring a weapon on our next excursion below ground, and that our torches are dry and well fueled. It is imperative we uncover the roots of this new civilization. I will not be hindered by superstitious nonsense. 14th of March. Dearest Isabel, I fear my writing will be illegible. I cannot will my hands to quit trembling but I owe you a full account. Fully geared, I took the men into the tunnels at dawn. We quickly passed through the panelled room and entered that vast darkness occupied by the oversized statue. The statue was a larger version of the one I found above the tunnel opening. Same full, bare chest, same long skirt with toes peeking under the hem. Only this statue had been blinded. 
Her pupils were hollowed out, and the third eye had been replaced with a lump of black coal. The effect was disquieting. With the benefit of hindsight, I believe the statue was a warning. The light from our torches soon attracted a flock of inconvenient moths. White wings marred with large black spots gave them the appearance of disembodied eyes. They plunged into our flames without pause, their bodies crackling like bits of burnt paper. But it was not the moths that left me in such an agitated state. We covered our mouths and noses with cloth and moved farther into the tunnels, eventually leaving the moths behind. The path led down into another large cave, this one with evidence of human occupation. The remnants of abandoned hearths littered the space, the rock ceiling above stained with black smoke. Rotting timbers looked to form a basic bed or chair. All evidence continued to point to a once flourishing and secure settlement. The hearths also helped explain the lack of obvious living quarters above ground. Those initial moments of discovery propelled me onward. I felt feverish with the promise of academic epiphany. Wherever possible, I kept us moving in a straight line. I regret I had no breadcrumbs. Instead, I opted to scratch a line of chalk on the walls, which I had brought for that purpose. We entered a third massive chamber, and my God, Isabel, the colours! You are familiar with the calcium formations that build over time as dripping water dissipates. This room was a treasure trove of natural sculpture. Many looked to be the traditional forms of bare and stacked lumps of grey, but about fifteen had crystallised into blood-red columns hanging from the roof and emerging from the cave floor. I presume the red was due to high iron content in the soil. When our torches met the angular faces of the crystal, the flickering light scattered in an iridescent panoply, splashing squares of red across the rock walls, reminding me of how jewelled colours shine through stained-glass windows at church in the afternoon sun. As I examined the walls, I noticed a series of black handprints, all about eye-level, and sideways with the fingers directed toward the opposite end of the cave. The Indians saw the handprints and were afraid. Through Asco, I attempted to boost the Indian spirits with reminders of extra pay. They babbled a response at Asco, I imagine in an attempt to negotiate, but he stayed firm. When the men still refused to move, Asco removed the whip from his side and struck the closest Indian until the rest complied. As we gathered to leave the crystal chamber, I caught a glint in the shadows and spotted one of the lizard creatures crouched in the dirt. I indicated the men should wait, and I approached it cautiously, intending to capture the creature alive. It watched me all the way, its gem glittering dully in its green forehead, head lowered in challenge. I patted my pocket gently to assure myself Gilbert was safe. He wiggled sweetly against my hand. I called for a net, and Asco threw me one from his pack. The men refused to come closer. I untangled the lines, while the creature watched me warily, a low growl rumbling from his throat. Slowly, I readied the net to toss over the creature. I raised my hands, I held my breath, and the creature leapt at my knees, somehow launching itself off the ground with tremendous force. I stumbled and fell, landing hard on my tailbone, 
The beast crouched in front of me, hissing, a red forked tongue flicking the air, and then he lunged. The damn thing must have weighed five stone, and every ounce of me struggled to pry his jaws from my boot. His jaws closed around my foot, and his fangs scraped the skin, shredding the leather, tearing the thick sole away with an unsettling rip. When he snapped his powerful jaws around my toes, I felt excruciating pain, and barely saw Asco slip behind the creature. After a short struggle, he slit its throat and dragged the beast off me. I escaped relatively unharmed, all things considered. Though, Issa, brace yourself, the beast's aim was true. The creature bit off the littlest toe on my left foot. I gritted my teeth and checked on Gilberth, who was wiggling fiercely in my pocket, but unharmed. Then, remembering how he could sense blood, I quickly pulled out one of my two handkerchiefs, soaked it thoroughly in my blood and shoved it into my pocket to keep the creature occupied. I wrapped the spare handkerchief tightly around my foot. The Indians were too busy watching Asco to notice my odd behaviour. Asco had gutted the beast and popped the gem out of the dying creature's skull to examine in the torchlight. This one was even larger than the stone he wore around his neck. I was too shaken to go on, so I motioned to the natives to bundle the corpse, thinking we could return after I cleaned the wound. But Asco, possessed by some demon insisted we continue and gather more creatures. When I deferred, he brandished his whip, but I refused to move, telling him I would surely bleed to death. He did not whip me then, though I expected it. Instead, he ripped the kerchief from my wound, told the Indians to hold my foot steady, and with my blood still spilling on the rough dirt floor, Asco pressed his torch to the ragged flesh where my toe had been. I screamed, if there is one smell I had never hoped to know. It is the smell of my own flesh burning. The pain cannot be described, but it did, in fact, stop the bleeding. I suppose Asco, with his aboriginal logic, considered it a kindness, but I admit to having had enough of jungle medicine. There were no objections to this mutiny. To the Indians, one master must have been as good as another. Asco forced us on at a moderate pace, and I was barely able to chalk the walls we passed. As we walked, I noticed something curious. The pain had lessened in my foot. I could hardly feel the burn any longer, let alone anything beneath my knee. I assumed Asco destroyed some vital nerve in his exuberance. Asco was on a mission, waving his torch in the corners, checking animal leavings for freshness. After countless rooms, I was deliriously thirsty and stopped. "'Listen here, Asco,' I said. "'This can't continue.' The damn fool punched me in the nose. There was nothing to be done. Asco was mad for gems. While I admit they were sufficiently diamond-like to arouse admiration, I failed to see how he'd excused him from driving us to exhaustion and leaving our corpses to rot in that vast honeycomb of darkness. I resolved to take the whip from Asco. No sooner had I made this decision, we entered a chamber twice the size of any other. A furnace-like heat blasted us in the face, drying the sweat from our pores. At the centre of the chamber was an enormous boiling spring, milky white and softly glowing. Around the edges of the cave, human remains were piled several feet deep in places, bones on top of bones on top of bones. We had found their primary nest. Isa, forgive me, I must catch my breath. The charred walls 
glistened with hot wetness, and the air smelled of sweet decay. I looked down and saw young Gilbert slither from my pocket and climb my chest. His eyes opened at last, bloodshot and wary. He settled at the base of my neck to watch. An adult creature emerged from the spring and crept toward us, white water trickling off its scaly back. The gem in its forehead burned brightly, illuminating the space around us. Polished river rocks shifted beneath its feet. The youngling at my shoulder hissed. A second creature emerged from the depths of the spring, hissing as well, its forked tongue vibrating and retracting smoothly. I looked from beasts to Asco, who was grinning like a madman, and I backed against a wall, easing a femur from the nearest pile. Asco shouted for the men to ready their weapons. Then we saw something strange. The memory still gives me chills. Some unknown signal passed over the sound of the bubbling spring, and hundreds of creatures emerged from the milky depths at once, the clattering of many claws against the shifting rock bed embedded in my brain. I waved my torch before me, thinking the fire would keep them away. Those strange lizard creatures of all sizes, their powerful bow legs gripping through the rock layer to ground below, their veined bellies scraped the ground and their tails swished. Asco froze, overwhelmed by the sight of so many gems. I took advantage of his distraction and broke the femur over his head. He stumbled and fell to his knees, dropping his whip and torch, which I retrieved and then backed away. The creatures grew even closer, their gems glowing like floating orbs in the darkness. Two of the natives behind me ran from the room and I lost sight of them. I can hardly bear to think where they ended up. The creatures paused to sniff Asco's fallen body and then began to nip experimentally at his trousers. The remaining two natives and I walked backwards slowly, trying not to attract attention. And then the first creature tore off a chunk of Asco's thigh. Asco screamed and started floundering, which is when the other creature swarmed his face and legs and hands until all of his skin was covered by thrashing tails and the loud tearing of flesh. The blood. I ran. Dear Isabel, I ran faster than I have ever run. May God forgive me. It must have been fear made me forget my wounded foot. I followed the chalk marks out of that accursed place, and I plan never to return, although that decision is of little consequence now. My foot, where the creature bit me, has become dreadfully necrotic. I escaped the underground, and, even with my infirmity, have managed to stoke the fire in the courtyard, waiting for the others to find their way out. I fear the wound is not healing. I applied the mud and ulusap concoction Asco gave me for bites, and it has had no effect. My only hope is to wait for the men to carry me to the river and catch a boat to safety. My only companion is the innocent youngling who has never left my side. Even in my mad dash from the caves, Gilbert has not abandoned me. I dare say he thinks I'm his mother. His mewling is adorable. I don't know how long I slept. The moon is overhead, and I can barely see to write. I did not want to alarm you, my love, but the sickness has spread. At first only my toes were numb, but now the paralysis has spread to my waist. I can no longer move my legs. I lied. I know the men aren't coming. For some time now I have listened to their screams echo from the cave. Screams and wails and a clattering of many claws. 
The air is thick with madness and the stink of rotten flesh. And mosquitoes. Dearest one, I grow so weary. It is time to fortify my spirit against the dark. It is time to join the symphony of discord. Gilbert has already eaten the rest of my toes, and I fear he hungers still. I regret nothing, except I am sorry to have ruined your beautiful handkerchiefs. Your faithful conductor, R. 
Tonight's story was featured in the fifth episode of Massacre Magazine in 2015. Let's give a listen to Fox Glen Road. I should never have told Becky about Fox Glen Road. The story had just slipped out from whatever secluded corner of my mind I'd been keeping it in, where I'd been letting it play out its weird half-life of memory. We'd been drinking a fair bit, talking on the sidelines of a friend's Halloween-themed birthday party. It was only September, but the guy had a fetish. Becky had only been marginally more interested in me than the gaudy festivities but the guests had been more than generous with the BYOB policy, and we'd found ourselves having a pretty good time. We were on the back patio, the last remaining chain smokers in the group, somewhat cynically observing the party's inexorable slide into petty debaucheries and arguments between longtime friends. They had just completed an unsuccessful round of ghost stories, the storytellers skipping around hopelessly in their narratives, blowing all pretense of suspense. Having failed at the last of the night's structured activities, they'd all fallen back into conversation, someone teasing the birthday boy about the lack of stronger drugs. Ghost stories always have this... Becky paused to light another cigarette, searching for the words she wanted. They're like bad jokes, right? Scripted. Just an excuse for the punchline. Yeah, I guess. They don't go over nearly as well at parties, though. Not birthday parties, anyway. We laughed. Thinking about the way she laughed then, it set something writhing in my chest, something heavy that was trying to find a direction to fall. Well, tell me a joke, then, she said, prodding me in the shoulder. You've heard all my jokes by now. How about a ghost story? Becky made spooky cartoon noises. I remember shuddering without first realizing why, but she noticed, and I guess she dragged it out of me. Too much drink, maybe, or the fact that she was sitting so close and it was late. There wasn't any way for me to know where it would lead, though. I couldn't have known that then. So, I got us both another drink, and I told her what happened on Fox Glen Road. It had been about a year before the birthday party. I'd been at loose ends, having just moved back to my small hometown to stay with an old friend for a while. The job search was slow-moving, given my general lack of interest in immediately rejoining the workforce. There was an airport just outside of town, smallish, but quite a bit larger than your average rural airfield. It had been taken over by the university as an educational airport back in the 70s so it stayed reasonably busy despite the lack of commercial traffic. Really, they'd overdeveloped, so there was a lot of unused land surrounding the place. Roads that led more or less nowhere, used by basically no one. I'd been driving those roads since I was a teenager, and that night I'd been feeling nostalgic, so I bought a gram of hash for my roommate and headed out to do some stargazing. Wheeling down all those old back roads in the middle of the night, I remembered what an escape it had been in my high school years. <laughs> the feeling had held up remarkably well across the intervening years. Fox Glen Road didn't go anywhere, 
I knew that when the sign coalesced in my headlights. But there had been a spot out there somewhere where I'd had some good times, so I decided to see if I could still find it. It wasn't hard. The road didn't even seem half as long as it had when I was a teenager. The spot was just a semicircle of unkempt grass bounded in by ubiquitous Midwestern woodland. Not more than four or five acres total. I almost pulled off the gravel road to park along the airport fence opposite the field, but then pulled into the field itself instead. More like old times, I guess. I swept the tree line with my headlights as I turned the car around, facing back out across the airport from the center of the field, then killed the engine and the lights and climbed down. No telling how long I sat out there on the hood of my car, rolling spliffs and staring at the sky. It was a new moon, dark. Wind rustled in the tall grass and stirred the trees behind me. No aircraft. I can't remember if the runway lights were on that night. There must have been something on my mind for me to have sat out there for that long. Hours? Whatever it was, it's faded now. Eclipsed by what happened afterwards, and by what happened to Becky a year after that. The next part really could have been the hash, I guess. If it wasn't for everything else, I'd happily have lived the rest of my life blaming it on the damn hash. All I could really tell at first was that there'd been a noise. Lost in thought as I was, I didn't even know how long I'd been hearing it. But I was sure I'd heard something. Or rather, I was that kind of sure that doesn't really feel like being sure at all. So, I sat up. I listened. The wind was messing with me, just strong enough and directionless enough to stir up that level of noise that confuses everything. For whatever reason, I'd got down off the hood of the car. Being on my feet seemed like a good idea. Being on my feet was more like being ready. It was a while before the sound came again, just barely audible over the wind, but still not really intelligible. It only lasted a moment. My thoughts just circled the noise aimlessly, failing to attach any meaning to it, drawing broad strokes around what might actually make a noise like that. The direction was tricky, too definitely further into the field, closer to the tree line than the road. But beyond that, nothing very clear. For the next few minutes I cursed the grass for rustling in the wind, my breath for rasping, the blood for roaring in my ears. At that point I'd never listened so hard in my life. I listened so hard I thought I'd be sore the next day. When the sound came again it lasted a bit longer, rising and falling before trailing off. The pitch was high. There was something kind of scratchy about it, like wool. I didn't like it. Some kind of cat, maybe. There were bobcats around the area, though I'd never seen one. Or it could have been something injured, a deer, a coyote, some other animal with its voice somehow mangled. But really, however I thought of the noise, I couldn't quite place it which makes me wonder to this day why I went towards it at all. That's what I did, though. I wandered further out into the field to get closer. Just a bit closer, I thought, and I knew what it was coming from. 
I moved slowly. It was dark and the grass was high and tangled by the wind. My footsteps were probing and uncertain, whether because of the terrain or the hash, I don't know, but as Becky said when I told her, it was probably both. It kind of hit me, then, that I was standing in the middle of a field in the dark of night with a head full of hash trying to actually locate the source of an unidentified noise. It kind of hit me, but not fully. It couldn't have fully hit me, or it'd have left, right? But just as that started to dawn on me, I heard it again. It was a bit louder, somewhat clearer, but I still couldn't make sense of it. Cat-like, yes, in a way, but that was wrong. More nasal, less fierce. It was a call of some kind, for attention, a distress signal. Help me, I'm hurt. I shivered, though I'd been sweating earlier on. Whatever was out there, I didn't want it to talk. I did not want that. At that point, I really did almost turn back to the car. I just didn't, though. I stood there. When the voice came again, it had moved. At least I thought it had moved a bit further back into the field. Thinking of it as a cat's call was comforting, the kind of thought that could be immediately followed with a decision to go back to the car and maybe roll another spliff or maybe go home. It wouldn't matter. No big deal. But it didn't sound like a cat. If I'd gone back to the car then, it would have been at a sprint, and I wouldn't have debated sticking around for more stargazing. I walked deeper into the field, haltingly, listening. My hands were out in front of me, as if I'd somehow be able to sense the presence of whatever was making that noise, as if I'd be able to react in any effective way if something had leapt out of the grass. The next time the noise pierced the wind and dark, it was pretty nearly unmistakable. It was a baby crying. Becky did not believe me. That the punchline, smartass? Or does it go on? She laughed. I was embarrassed. It goes on, yeah. She looked at me strangely, almost sympathetically for a moment, then sneered and winked and raised her glass. Nice act, but no damn way. Even if there was a baby crying out there, which I'm not buying, by the way, you'd have run like hell, crying like a baby yourself the whole damn way. She took a long drink of her cocktail, still shaking with laughter, spilling a bit over her chin. The weird thing is, I wanted to agree with her. There couldn't have been a baby out there, and if there had been, then I'd have run. I'd have flipped completely, run or frozen stiff, or just started crying and shaking. I don't know, but I definitely wouldn't have done what I did, what I actually did. It had taken me a while to get back to the story, and only then because she'd prodded me on. Go on, you spooky bastard. Finish what you started. No, wait. Let me guess how it goes. Strangely, her guess at how the rest of the story played out wasn't far off the mark. The cry was not far off, mewing eerily off in the swishing grass. My spine convulsed with prickling static, a reflexive whole body cringe. I just stared at the dark, crouched unmoving, unbreathing, waiting for something horrible. As thought gradually returned, I remember wondering why I hadn't run, why I wasn't in the car already, why I hadn't pissed myself. Instead, 
I was entirely fixated on the problem, my mind solidly made up. However terrifyingly out of place this infant may have been, I would not allow myself to be the kind of man that would leave a helpless child to die. How would I ever have justified that? Could I have just explained that I was afraid? That it was dark? That it was spooky and windy and I'd had too many spliffs? I could have pretended it didn't happen, I suppose. Tricked myself into believing that and just headed back to the car. The cry came again moments later, a bit further away. It was no less horrible, no less disturbing than before. But I had steeled myself as best I could by that point. I had decided to accept the reality that there was an infant out there somewhere that would certainly die if I didn't find it and get it to safety. I pressed through the hesitance in my limbs, a wall of pins and needles, and moved towards the cry. Every blade of grass that brushed against me elicited its own twitch, adding to the general palsy of my stride, but I moved forward bit by bit. In memory, it seems like it went on that way for hours, days, like a whole chapter of my life passed in the darkness of that field, searching after this dreadful presence in the grass. It was probably minutes, but no less maddening when I try to make sense of what occurred. The cry kept moving away, and I kept following, more and more fearful of what I might find. After what seemed an interminable procession through the field, I looked up to find myself not looking at the star-pierced sky, but into the looming shadow of the tree line. The elms and poplars swayed in the wind, and I could hear the last cicadas of the season still droning on in there. I had reached the edge of the grass and the new moon gloom was nearly absolute beyond that point. The infant squealed again, off in the forest now, and some scrap of reason worked its way through my fugue. I'd been walking. A baby, that is to say a human infant, would be crawling. How had it covered so much ground? Where was it going? I looked up at the tree line and was suddenly awash in thoughts of old European folklore, deep dark forests, fairies and evil spirits luring people into the woods. Absurdly, I found myself wondering who had told me those stories. Some stern German grandfather came to mind, but my own stern German grandfather had never had much use for talking with me. I didn't think it likely he'd have told me stories. If he had, though, those would have inevitably have been the ones he chose. I looked back across the field, but it was hard to see anything over the tall grass and the uneven terrain. I heard a whisper of that infant's wailing again, and without any further thought, I ran. Away from the tree line, from the deep dark woods, and whatever creature lurked there with the voice of a baby's cry— I ran near blind through the tall grass, frantically parting it with outstretched arms, and I don't think I was screaming. I was trying very hard to breathe, to keep breathing as I ran. I don't think that I was screaming. It's just that the memory is so loud with breath and wind and grass. It wasn't really very long before I reached a gravel road, with the airport bordering it beyond. It couldn't have been very long at all. But I wasn't on Fox Glen Road. The sun was coming up by the time I reached my car. 
It had taken me almost an hour to find it, as I'd come out of the field on the other side of the airport entirely. The roads were mostly dead ends, abutted by the airport fence or some nameless farm or unmarked building. In the hazy morning light, the field where I'd parked, from which I'd fled, should have lost most of its terror. It hadn't. I worked my way uncertainly through the grass to the car, alternating between awkward hesitance and skittish bursts of speed. I'd wasted no time, climbed into the car, cranked the ignition, and roared out of the field onto Fox Glen Road. I blew the stop sign at its end, opened up the engine, and sped back into town like the maniac teenager I'd been nostalgic for the previous night. Arriving back at my newly rented apartment, I'd stumbled inside, mumbled something incoherent to my roommate and his girlfriend's inquiries, and retreated into my spartan and barely unpacked bedroom. After contemptuously ditching the hash in an empty dresser drawer, I fell onto the bed and slept through the day. When I woke, I was halfway through my coffee before the events of the night before began to resolve. There was something that bothered me about it, something beyond the infant's wail, the folktale nightmare of the looming tree line. Or maybe not beyond, exactly, but beside. Even then, drinking my coffee, glad that my friend had gone to work or elsewhere and left me some solitude, I was faintly humiliated. It was emasculating to think of myself sprinting across a field in full panic, full retreat from a series of bizarre noises and a dark forest. But beside that embarrassment, that lingering fear was something else. Fox Glen Road, it's not where I'd come out. The field, as I've said, was only three or four acres, a semicircle of unmowed grass bounded completely by the road and the tree line. I'd fled the tree line. I'd come out on a road, but not Fox Glen Road. So that was something. I checked online maps of the area, looking to see if there was a crossroad I'd never noticed, an open break in the tree line somewhere, any sort of pass or alternative geography I hadn't taken into account. Nothing. Fox Glen Road was 3.4 miles long, no exit, a single small farm at its end. The tree line surrounding the field itself was an almost mockingly perfect half-circle, unbroken. There was no heroic follow-up investigation. I did not resolve the discrepancy at all. I just blinked at the map on the screen, finished my cup of coffee, and decided to pick up smoking again. I went out to get a pack. I almost convinced myself that I would never think about Fox Glen Road again. But then a year later came the birthday party, and Becky, sitting so close, so late at night, asking me to tell her a ghost story. A month after the birthday party, Becky asked me to take her to Fox Glen Road. We were lying in my bedroom, which had only recently been completely unpacked, despite having been there over a year. We'd made love, were drinking coffee, and were gradually stealing ourselves to leave the apartment. There was a mischief in her that had always been at the root of our friendship, so the request was light-hearted, but it struck me heavily regardless. I tried to be subtle in my refusal, hoping I could deflect her suggestions, that it would just pass us by somehow. She teased, Your fear of babies run deeper than prophylactics? No, I just... 
There's nothing really out there anyway. Nothing to do. Come on, it's almost Halloween. Let's do something spooky. I'll spot us some whiskey, cool? I groaned, but the events of the year before had grown distant enough that I could no longer summon any real dread. I knew that she would keep teasing, and that the longer I held out, the more embarrassing it would be when I finally relented, which I would. Becky could have goaded me into nearly anything, especially since we'd started seeing one another. Already pulling on my shoes, I resigned myself to a dignified defeat. We'd gotten distracted with one errand and then another on the way there, almost as if circumstance were conspiring to delay our arrival. The day faded, and gradually my peripheral hopes that we would be in and out of the field with the sun still in the sky were demolished. We arrived around dusk. I wondered when the moon would come up, what phase it was in. I thought I might get away with parking along the airport fence, but Becky insisted that I pull into the field. We watched the stars reveal themselves in the sky from the hood of the car, passing a bottle of cheap bourbon back and forth, swapping inane stories about former classmates and co-workers. I wasn't without a certain measure of dread, but I'd fallen into an easy rhythm of conversation with Becky that had lulled me somewhat. I had almost forgotten where we were, what had happened to me there, when it all started over again. The sudden wail of an infant off in the darkness behind us, the equally sudden rise of the wind, the rustling of the grass that stirred all my settled dread to the surface again. Becky laughed, a sound that was half exhilaration and half nervousness. She bolted upright, hopped off the car, taking a quick slug from the whiskey bottle before setting it on the roof of the car. I shuffled off the hood myself and turned to scan the rippling sea of darkened grass. I should have insisted that we leave immediately, should have been resolute, should have resisted Becky's impish teasing. But I didn't. Her excitement confused me. We had stumbled right back into the epicenter of my private horror, but it skimmed right over her. She was tugging on my sleeve, her face lit up with a bizarre enthusiasm. That's when I realized that she hadn't heard the sound as clearly as I had. That she couldn't have. That if she'd heard the baby cry as I'd have, she'd be in altogether different spirits. She'd probably thought it sounded like a cat. The cry came again, harder to distinguish over the risen wind, and Becky was pulling me off the grass, eager as a hunting dog. If I could have thought clearly, if I could have known what would come... I would have hauled her back to the car, by force if necessary, to hell with whatever shame it might have cost me. Instead, I followed, intent on keeping up with her, not losing sight of her. I wish the moon would rise and banish some of the darkness. At first, Becky's excitement had left me rudderless, lost as how to reason with her. That soon faded. I pleaded with her, but in a lull of the wind, the creature cried out again, and I saw the recognition dawn in her eyes. She stared with a mixture of horror and concern into the night, looked back to me in utter disbelief. She'd thought, up to that very moment, that I'd been making it all up, that it was a bobcat, a coyote, a hidden set of speakers, anything but a human child's cry of distress. 
Why I thought she would leave then? I don't know. But of course she didn't. She's braver than I am. I would have admitted that years earlier, but didn't know how far that courage went. There was a sudden determination in her face, a look almost of ferocity that I'd never seen. She must have thought similarly to how I had when I first recognized the sound a year before, that thought that I would not be the kind of man that left a helpless child to die in the woods. For Becky, though, that decision ran much, much deeper. She tore away from me, launching herself forward, swallowed in the midnight grass. I raced after her, fumbling in my jacket for the flashlight. Becky was calling out to the creature, frantic reassurances that she was coming, not to worry that everything would be all right. I swept the grass with a beam of the flashlight, but it was pathetically dim. The sounds of Becky's calls and the baby's cries were sourceless echoes. They were everywhere. They were threaded with the wind. But they were getting more distant, more strange. Dopplered and shivering noises strung up in some hysterical frequency. Desperate, running what must have been circles to trace the source of Becky's voice, I found myself against the tree line. It was no less ominous than it had been a year before. I recoiled, stumbled backwards, but kept my feet. Casting the flashlight beam into the undergrowth was like tossing a candle into the abyss. Darkness was everything, and all my pitiful light could do was accent it with shuffling motion, too dim even to be called shadow. The wind died down. It was quiet for a long time. I was slumped on my knees when I heard her laughing. My head and hands weighed a thousand pounds. My cheeks felt crusted with sand. I struggled to look up. Her figure, emerging from the woods, was faintly lined with predawn light. She was giggling softly, cooing and baby-talking. Something was bundled into her jacket, which she held cradled in her arms. Waves of pickling goose flesh broke over me, and something in my chest dropped away, falling and falling. She cooed and tickled the bundle as she stumblingly made her way towards me. I stood with tremendous effort, with no sense of up and down, only enormous weight. Becky hadn't so much as glanced up from her swaddled prize. Her clothes were mostly torn away, her feet bare and mangled, skin soiled and scratched. She came to an oddly shuddering halt directly in front of me, and I opened my mouth to speak, but only dry gasps came out. Becky clutched the bundle close, but still seemed to offer it up, imploring me to look and see what she'd brought back with her from the forest. I did not want to, but it dragged my gaze. There was nowhere else in the world to look. One of Becky's fingers gently pulled back a fold of her jacket to let me see. She whispered in a crackled voice, Isn't she beautiful? Within was a coiled and knotted mass of brambles, only vaguely doll-shaped. A pine cone at its core had been carefully swathed in leaf mulch from the forest floor. In the glowing light, I watched a droplet fall from Becky's chin to moisten the doll's pine cone heart. She slowly lifted her face as if to look at me, and with a fevered sort of adoration in her voice said, 
I can see through darkness now. Becky's eyes were bloodied pits, trailing gruesomely across her cheeks. She tilted her chin down again to gesture to the bundle. Her mother has my eyes. I was told much later that she fought the paramedics and the police when they arrived, when they tried to take her bundle away. We'd been reported missing by my roommate a week before, and the county sheriff had discovered my car off Fox Glen Road, about seven miles from where they'd found us. I don't remember the drama of the emergency room or being separated as we were taken to treatment facilities. I don't remember much of the next several months, to be honest. Becky was transferred to a state institution after her eye surgeries and remains there. They stopped letting her call me after a while, which my therapist tells me is probably for the best. She had never made sense after that, only pleaded that I get her out of the institution so that we could be together with our baby. It wasn't healthy for me to keep talking with her, no matter how badly I felt. I know that now. My days are spent volunteering and managing my personal care plan. It's very important for me to maintain a routine, though thankfully I've been able to significantly reduce my medications. I have an appointment at the end of the week to discuss how that's working out. I read the police reports and the medical records more often than I should. As much as I wish that none of it had ever happened, knowing that some part of it definitely did, is reassuring, I think. That was Zachary Siebert's Fox Glen Road as read by Seth Williams. Seth Williams is the avatar for a three-kilometer sentient starship that is parked, probably uncomfortably, close to the third planet. Surprisingly, he has not yet been discovered. He is very happy that the inhabitants have discovered enough technology to that he can communicate in this limited fashion. Any communication can be directed to www.theboojum.org. Thank you, Seth. That will be our show for the evening, children of the night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on iTunes or Acast or wherever you found this podcast. Our show is produced by our editors Philip Oldham and Scott Silk and theme music by Diane Severson. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.